You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The movie is All the President's Men, which came out in 1976. It was directed by Alan J. Pakula. All the President's Men, the story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know uh, Howard Hunt? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? They stumbled into Leeds. Certainly, it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. It stars Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Jason Robards, Hal Holbrook, Jane Alexander, Martin Balsam, Jack Warden, Lindsay Krauss, and Stephen Collins, among many others. The genre would be political conspiracy thriller. How can a film be so dense with information and yet so rewatchable at the same time? On paper, this docudrama about the long-term investigation by the Washington Post into the Watergate break-in and cover-up shouldn't be nearly as entertaining as it turns out to be. We spend pretty much all of its 138-minute runtime following our two intrepid reporters, Woodward, played by Redford, and Bernstein, played by Hoffman, as they make awkward phone calls, scan through long printouts of names, get grilled at their desks by various middle-aged superiors wearing white button-down shirts, and constantly having doors close in their faces as they visit the homes of various strangers. With just a few rewrites, this could be a dramatization of the life of a Jehovah's Witness or an Amway salesperson pre-internet. But it's a much more important story, of course, and all the more cinematic for all of the amazing talent involved in front of and behind the camera. The late, great Alan J. Pakula directed this just a couple of years after directing the seminal paranoia thriller The Parallax View with Warren Beatty. And he brings a lot of the same labyrinthian conspiracy sensibilities to this thriller-slash-procedural. And it helps that he's working with a top-flight group of collaborators. To start, you had Peak Redford, not only starring as Woodward, but producing. He actually helped put this whole project together, and bear in mind that this film was released barely two years after President Nixon's resignation. So they clearly were not wasting any time, and everything being dramatized was still pretty fresh. And Redford's portrayal of Woodward, who evolves from fresh-faced journalist to seasoned investigator, is very well realized. I told you inside, I have nothing more to say. I understand that. What I don't understand is how you got here. Well, I assure you, there's nothing very mysterious involved. Well, a little while ago, I was talking to a couple of the lawyers assigned to represent the burglars. So? They never would have been assigned to represent the burglars had anyone known that the burglars had arranged for their own counsel. Only the burglars couldn't have arranged for their own counsel since they never even made a phone call. He also has great chemistry with Hoffman as the more aggressive, seen-some-shit-grinder reporter Bernstein, who's just not going to take no for an answer from any potential source. 
I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. That first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's gonna understand. You don't mention Colson's name for the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He's a White House consultant and nobody knows right. him. Yours is better. If you're gonna do it, do it right. Here's my notes. If you're gonna hype it, hype it with the facts. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story. Now don't fuck it up. It's just an ideal combination of acting styles. Hoffman's wiry, method energy, and Redford's almost regal matinee idol underplaying. And one of the great joys of this movie, and one aspect which prevents it from being a dry procedural, is watching how these two personas team up to take on a seemingly endless parade of Washington characters through their investigation. Higher-ups, accountants, lawyers, filing clerks, secretaries, all with varying levels of paranoia. Only some of these folks they talk to are even aware that they might be part of a conspiracy related to the Watergate break-in, while the rest are often even unsure of what the big deal might be. The early perception of this incident was that it was just a low-stakes crime, just some thugs committing a robbery. But the more folks we watch our intrepid reporters go to question, the more urgency this story starts to take on. Could you give us their names? We haven't revealed the sources of people that have talked to us. You know, I really can't talk about this because... Would they be members of the committee? Someone got to that woman. It's the key to the whole cover-up. How can you write that there's a cover-up? We don't know that there's a cover-up. Well, then I don't know what the hell you need. And we see how that level of urgency eventually rubs off on Redford's Woodward, who initially comes off as the more dignified of the two. And we also see Bernstein, who's witnessing how Woodward has this slick polish that potentially opens more doors. I mean, Redford was as good-looking as they came. Anybody who saw him come to the door would be hard-pressed to close it on him. Well, that rubs off on Hoffman's portrayal of Bernstein as well, as he starts to dial things down a bit, try to be a little less manic. And boy, do they encounter some characters portrayed by a loaded cast of familiar faces who leave distinct impressions with limited screen time, including Robert Walden, Stephen Collins, Ned Beatty, Meredith Baxter, Lindsay Krauss, Jane Alexander, and of course the late, great Hal Holbrook. He just died a couple years ago, playing the mysterious Deep Throat. Holbrook himself walks such a tricky tightrope considering that we can hardly see him nor even get a direct answer from most of anything he says. But just his pointed demeanor and delivery says a lot. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. What Deep Throat is basically doing is passively aggressively goading Redford's Woodford into doing the legwork to get to the bottom of something that he himself knows too much about. Until, of course, he gives Woodstein, the pair, that's how they're nicknamed, the final piece that they need for their investigation towards the end. And let's not also forget the legendary trio of character actors playing the editorial staff of The Post, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, and Jason Robards. 
this White House guy, a good one of pro, came up and asked, what is this Watergate compulsion with you guys? Compulsion? I think it's a story. This is not compulsion. Well, I, I said, well, we think it's important. And he said, if it's Thanks. so goddamn important, who in the hell are Woodward and Bernstein? Now, what do you expect him to say from the White House? You're doing a great job? Yeah. I now, why don't you ask him what he's really saying? He wants to take the, the, the story away from Woodstein and, and uh, give it to the National Guard. have some experienced guys sitting around who know the politicians who have the contact. We're aware of that. You said it. Sitting around. Damn. The dangerous story, Miss Paper. What if your boys get it wrong? Then it's all right. Well, we all have to go out and work for a living. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, each of them are no longer with us. But seriously, if you came of age during the 80s and 90s, you would be hard-pressed to find a major crime drama on TV or at the movies which didn't feature at least one of these guys as a detective, a DA, judge, or corporate executive. These actors just ooze wisdom and authority. None more so than two-time Oscar winner Jason Robards, portraying real-life journalism titan Ben Bradley who was then the executive editor of the Washington Post. Robards, along with Jane Alexander, were the only two from this stacked cast to receive Oscar nominations. And justifiably, he actually won Best Supporting Actor that year. And Robards is just such a delight. His Ben Bradley is both seemingly sleep-deprived and skeptical most of the time, yet you can feel the occasional subtle kick of excitement that he gets as this story starts to come together. His exchanges with Redford and Hoffman are definitely among this film's highlights. Well, what else beside the money? Where's the goddamn story? The money's the key to whatever this is. Says who? Deep Throat. Who? Oh, that's uh, Woodward's uh, garage freak, his source and the executive. Garage freak? Jesus, what kind of a crazy fucking story is this? And beyond that, the film just looks amazing, thanks to stellar work from the late great cinematographer Gordon Willis, who also served as the DP on the first two Godfather films just a few years before this. His lens makes the most of suburban kitchens, dimly lit parking garages, endless rows of starkly lit newsroom cubicles. On paper, it might seem mundane, but it never feels that way. Willis almost always keeps things laser-focused on at least one of our two protagonists, even as we might just see one of them typing furiously way in the background. Of course, even amidst so much seemingly non-cinematic drudgery, he's also allowed some great flourishes, as we still get that now famous shot of the Library of Congress reading room. We see the camera slowly pull away from over our protagonists doing research at one table, eventually revealing several concentric circular tables all around them. Me personally, I cannot think of a better visualization for a couple of underdogs hopelessly trying to crack open the truth within a giant wheel of power and corruption. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. And speaking of that sequence in the Library of Congress, it also serves as one of the rare instances when we actually hear music during this movie. Yeah, this is a tough category for this movie, as it's often very quiet with very little score. But there was, in fact, a minimalist score composed for this movie, and it's from one of my favorite composers from the 1970s, David Shire. Shire delivered some great music for several great movies during this decade, including The Taking of Pelham 123, the original movie, The Conversation, and previous episode, Saturday Night Fever. Now, we don't actually hear much outside of some spare orchestration, mostly utilizing horns and piano, but it succeeds in helping to maintain a tense tone for much of this movie and never more so than what we hear as the camera pulls us over in that reading room in the Library of Congress. Uh -huh. 
that brings us to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. It probably goes without saying that I don't really find there to be any wasted talent with this movie. So I'll take this category in a different direction. It's pretty astounding that 45 years later, All the President's Men is still quoted, studied, and celebrated, and deservedly so. But it wasn't the only movie trying to tell this story. Well, from an accuracy standpoint, it might have been. Now, if you're seeking a more comedic, more satirical angle to this story, a small gem of a comedy came out in 1999 called Dick, referring to President Richard Nixon, by the way. A film that was criminally underrated and underseen. It starred Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams as two teenage girls who inadvertently uncovered the Watergate break-in one night as they lived there. And they also befriend President Richard M. Nixon himself, played delightfully by Dan Hidega. Yes, all of this is heavily fictionalized, but damn if it's not funny. And in the movie Dick, we also see comically exaggerated versions of Woodward and Bernstein, played by Will Ferrell and Bruce McCullough, respectively. And as we see them in several sequences, which are actually parallel to ones in All the President's Men, the result is just pure comedic gold. If you're looking for a hysterical companion piece to this movie, you just cannot go wrong with Dick. I mean, seriously, I've actually watched these two films back to back. It's a lot of fun. And Dick is also likely to be covered in a future episode. And that brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. My personal favorite has to be about two-thirds of the way through as Robard's Ben Bradley tells Woodstein, that's what he calls him, kind of combines their name, his now famous anecdote about getting publicly embarrassed with a story about J. Edgar Hoover just before giving them the go-ahead to publish their first major story with revelations about John Mitchell controlling the Creep Fund, which was the committee to re-elect the president. A story that started to bust things open back in 1972. And he ends this scene with a simple line of dialogue, run that baby, before he saunters off in his tuxedo, seemingly off to some upscale function. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy, and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him, fuck you. (laughs) Well, everybody said, you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Run that, baby. (laughs) It's about as quiet a moment of triumph as you can have, but it works perfectly for this movie. That brings me to the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. As I've already alluded to, this film rarely has any particularly loud moments nor moments of high drama but just percolates throughout thanks not only to confident direction by Pakula, but also its screenplay by the legendary William Goldman. Like I said, this story is dense, but Goldman's structure clarifies it, wisely focusing on just the first year, just the first year of this investigation, basically taking us through Nixon's second inauguration at the beginning of 73. That's kind of where the story ends. At least 10 months before the major convictions for conspiracy started to roll through. We never actually see Woodward or Bernstein relishing any of these moments of triumph real time, and that's by design. Thanks to the genius of Goldman's screenplay, we only see them in the underdog phase, just grinding it out to get the investigation going and moving forward. And not only is this film structured well, 
but the dialogue just pops. Pretty much everyone on screen speaks like intelligent adults, but never in an uber-clever way which calls attention to itself. Like something written by Aaron Sorkin, on his worst days at least. Most of it coming through conversation, we often get vivid portrayals of all levels of this cover-up, as much from what people don't say as from what they do say. Hi, this is Carl. I'm sorry to disturb you now, but we're going with the story that Holden was the fifth man in control of the fun, and they're hassling us here. We got three confirmations, but if you could just help us, I'd appreciate it. Look, I won't say anything about Holden, not ever. I understand that we wouldn't want you to do that. We know it's against the law for you to say anything. If there's some way you could warn us to hold on the story, we'd appreciate it. I'd really like to help you, but I can't. Look, I'm going to count to ten, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to ten. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to ten, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight. All right, I'm going to start counting. Okay? We all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You got it straight now? The performances, the direction, the visuals... It all works in perfect concert, but none of it would reach the heights that this film does without it first being on the page. The screenplay was adapted by the nonfiction book of the same name written by, yep, you guessed it, by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And it's a great book. But here's the thing. It covers every aspect of the investigation, all the way through Nixon's resignation in 1974, for several years. Goldman... William Goldman, who along with Redford consulted with Woodward on transitioning this into a watchable movie and a readable screenplay, ended up making all the right decisions not only to keep it grounded but cinematic. And for his work, Goldman justifiably won the Oscar that year for Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, William Goldman just left us a few years ago in 2018, and he left one hell of a legacy as a screenwriter. In the same year as All the President's Men, no less, he also wrote the screenplay for the dazzling thriller Marathon Man, also starring Dustin Hoffman and also a previous episode. Check it out. Beyond that, Goldman built up a hell of a track record over several decades, often adapting other people's work, but still resulting in cracking screenplays for classic movies. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Misery, The Princess Bride, Running through all of these films, his characters are generally flawed, funny, resourceful, and all too relatable. Goldman has earned his place among the great Hollywood writers, and for delivering his all-time best screenplay, he is the MVP. My rating for All the President's Men would be five stars out of five. 45 years after it was first released, All the President's Men remains a triumph for all involved. One of the best films of the 1970s, and also likely the best cinematic representation of journalism that we are ever likely to see. That it does so with minimal flash is all the more impressive. And if you're looking to watch All the President's Men, it's currently streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another obstructive review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.